everybody, and welcome to week six of the 52 Weeks of Sheep podcast, the pod, the companion podcast to the 52 Weeks of Sheep group on Facebook. I'm Tammy. And I'm Allie. And today we have a special guest. We are talking with Emily Hartman from Mrs. Hartman's Farmhouse Market. Hi, Emily. Hey, so nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Yeah, so this week we are talking about, what's that breed of sheep, Emily? We are talking about Lester Longwool, which uh, some people might also know it as English Longwool, but in America we just call it the Lester. The Lester. And here I've been pronouncing it Leicester the whole time. <laughs> it's okay. That's pretty common. It's uh, those funny English words like that. Yeah. So how long have you been working with this this particular breed of sheep? Wow. So I, uh, I, I got, ended up getting my first flock, um, in, what was it? 2018. Um, it was kind of a surprise. My husband didn't know about it. <laughs> so there was that whole thing. Um, <laughs> just welcome. I was like, Hey, by the way, we are getting sheep in about six months. We got to pick them up in Wisconsin. So we had that going on. I don't actually raise them anymore, but I still work with them quite a bit. I, I, you know, try to stay yeah, somewhat active with the breed association, maybe not as much as I used to, but still, still yeah, here and there. All right. What made, what made you want that breed? Wow. That's a long story. So, you know, I raised sheep growing up. Uh, we mostly had Romney and stuff like that for a little while, but it was kind of like a just like a little thing that my son had said, he said, Hey mom, we should raise sheep. And he was like three, which I was like, Oh yeah, of course we should do that. Like, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and so I actually kind of ended up doing a big breed study, like a, a self-guided breed study. Um, and I ended up just kind of gravitating towards long wools. And after kind of reading about the different ones that I ended up liking from that breed study, I landed on the Lester and I just really liked the fiber. I felt like it was a little bit softer than and some of the other ones I had tried, like the long wools that I had tried. And then, you know, I think the biggest thing was like, after you read the history of them, I was like, okay, I just really, I'm kind of like a history nerd. And I just, I really liked it. And it's all just kind of went from there. That's cool. So where were they originated from? So it is an English breed. And so a lot of the English breeds are just named after where they came from. So the Leicester came from Leicestershire. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Now, do all the Lesters come from that same area or is it just this particular breed? So you're talking like Border Lester and Blueface Lester? Yeah. I'm actually not as well versed in those breeds just because I was, just became so focused in the Lester. But the the two other Lesters kind of stemmed from this main breed. So the Lester and then you have Blueface Lester and there's a few other breeds like uh, I think Blueface Lester had like a maybe Teeswater. I might eh, don't quote me on that. Something like that there, or Wensleydale or something like that in there. And then the Border Lester had some Cheviot influence. So two, they're all three separate breeds completely. A lot of times people that don't know, they kind of clump them all together. Right. So that does tend to happen still, but eh, not not as much. Well, and that's because I think of people like you and the Breeders Association who seems to be doing a very good job of getting the word out about this particular breed. Yeah. 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 I was doing a lot of reading yesterday between your website and the Breeders Association website. 
and looking at the different pamphlets and, and some of the other stuff we'll talk about later. I was amazed at how much information there is out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, one of those things that the Breed Association, I had helped work on it was a couple years ago. It was not just me. It was me and uh, there was Kelly Miller and oh, there was a few different people working on that. That was the Making Waves in the Wool campaign. And I was just starting on, you know, I was just starting on that when I was kind of on my way out of uh, sheep. Yeah. And so, I mean, I still kind of do a few things with that. I could probably, yeah, I mean, you know, now that I'm talking about, I could probably do a little bit better, but it's, it's a, it's a great thing, I think, for the breed to help kind of set itself apart from, from those other breeds and really promoting our breed. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things I, I did print off the little pamphlet on the making waves in wool. And that just seems like a really fascinating program that, that really distinguishes that breed. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, it was a lot of work went in behind the scenes on that and just something I'm really proud of. Yeah. And you, I know on your website, because I just purchased some fiber from you, I can't wait to get it and spin it. I don't think I've ever spun Lester before. I have definitely spun BFL and I've definitely spun Lincoln, Mm -hmm. which is a totally different long wool. But I was getting Lincoln long wool and and Lester long wool. I had been getting those confused for years and years. So I know I can't be the only one. No, don't feel too bad. It actually... You know, that has actually happened more than once to me. Lincoln, it often gets confused with Lincoln. Like I said, BFL, not as much border Lester, but you know, it still happens. It's just, that's, it's not as well known. And I think maybe part of that is like, you know, Lester's not shown in the same way. Like it's not a, it's not traditionally shown. Like when you go to a sheep show and they have them all lined up like that, that's not how a Lester is really shown. They're card graded, which is matching the breed to its breed standard. And unfortunately, card gradings don't happen very often. They're kind of expensive to put on. (laughs) And I think part of that maybe, but, you know, it does help preserve the breed quite a bit doing it with the card grading versus a more traditional, you know, approach where it tends to become a little bit more fashionable looks and sheep versus what it actually was supposed to be, if that makes any sense. That's kind of getting it way back into some other... (laughs) Like you get starting to show stuff and it's, that's actually beyond me, but yeah, actually they're, they're holding a card grading for the Lester this year at the Wisconsin sheep and wool um, festival. Oh, wow. May I ask what card grading is? So a card grading, it's where you're basically, you're, you're measuring each sheep to the breed standard, not against each other. Not yep. So you're not, you're not comparing the sheep against each other. You're, you're basically just taking that individual sheep looking at the breed standard and saying, does this sheep match this description? You know, this, this, does it tick all the, all those squares in this box here? And so that really helps preserve the breed because it's, it's measuring the sheep against the standard versus when you're looking at all the sheep and you're just kind of picking a favorite. Does that make sense? Cause somebody might look at them and, and like a certain style of sheep, but that might not necessarily be what the breed is supposed to look like or the fleece is supposed to look like. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. So that's like a whole random tangent there, but I mean, that's, I just thought that was really neat. I saw that and I was like, dang it. I wish I was in a sheep this year. Cause I would be going back to Wisconsin this year. <laughs> so I know. And I missed the application for that show to teach. I, and I'm bummed because that would have been a really cool card greeting 
show to watch. Yeah, super informative. And I would also say for those of you listening, if you want to see what some of those breed standards are and the judging guide, the Lester Longwell Breeders Association does have that as a PDF document that you can download. Yeah. To be able to read what those standards are. And I that website is very good about going over, you know, the legs and the neck and the wool and the head and their carriage and all of the different things that go into that breed being a historic breed. And it, I found it really fascinating to to read all of those standards. Oh, yeah. It's like a whole, I get lost in it sometimes. <laughs> it's amazing. I can see that. Yeah. I love nerding out on that kind of stuff. <laughs> see, and that's not at all how I would have imagined you when I met you at Copper K. <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, Copper K, my very first year there, I didn't have sheep that year. I was, it was something that I was, I think it was kind of like a fake it till you make it kind of a thing. I was like, all right. <laughs> I kind of felt like such a fraud my first year. I was like, I was like, all right, I'm going to send in an application. It's, it's her first year doing this show and I'm going to try to make some stuff wool related, but I kind of just feel like a big fraud, but I want to go and get my foot in the door. And it kind of worked out because it was my first year. My, I think that was my very first uh, show I ever did my, at least fiber fest. And it was the first year copper K happened. And so it kind of just worked out in my favor, I guess. And I went ever since up until I moved away, you know, <laughs> I know the last time you were there, if I remember correctly, we were all camping up in the, the hay field and you took off after the show one day you took off. And I remember calling Cami and saying, you know, I'm a little concerned. I thought she went to go get dinner. It's getting really late. And it was, you went to go pick up sheep, wasn't it? Uh, yes, that was, yeah, I think um, that's, <laughs> I did. <laughs> we went um, and there was, you know, it was just, sometimes you just got to do that. You know, it was my opportunity. I was like, well, I drove, I drove five hours down here. What's more, one more hour to Bozeman <laughs> to pick up sheep. <laughs> Oh, you know, <laughs> uh, it used to be what happened at Copper K State at Copper K, but now we're letting the public in on some of that secret knowledge. We're airing out the details. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, you never know what's going to happen there. Uh, no, it's always a good time. Do you miss Copper <laughs> K? I think for me, I've decided, per- I, I have to say, I, I love Cami. I love that. I still get emails for that. I know I have, I'm like super far away now. I'm out here in Maine, but, um, you know, I do plan on returning someday, but I've decided that it won't be until like, I'm going back to pick up sheep. Like that's going to be like my healing journey is to make my trip back out to Montana, do copper K and pick up sheep and head on back. That's kind of my plan. I mean, I don't know how long that's going to be, but. <laughs> it sounds like a perfect plan. Yeah, I think, I think so. Like I said, I think it'd be just very healing for me. Good full circle. Good feel good story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we can't wait until you come back. We definitely miss you at Copper K. You and is it Johnny that's your youngest? Is that right? Johnny's the youngest. I got Finn's the middle boy and Levi's the oldest. They're just Okay. Yeah. I, it was Finn that was making roll eggs that that one Oh, he made him like 2 years and he was like giving them away. Yes. <laughs> he was in charge and um <laughs> it was just it's funny. He's like my little He's my, he's my wingman. Nice. So cute. He was, he was, he was right. You guys, you were right next to LaVon from the wool mill mm-hmm. and 
he was sitting on there on that blending board making Rolex, and he was. He was taking them to everybody at different booths and handing them out at your booth. And it was just fun to see him <laughs> so engaged and and having fun and being creative. Oh yeah, that's that. That is totally his personality, and I think it was actually. The show that that particular show, I remember we'd picked up wool from Levon and the way back from Copper K, I had bags of roving because I had all the windows open. I didn't have AC in my car. It just it was hot <laughs> and I had all the windows open and I didn't secure the bags. So all this roving was like flying out. And I <laughs> I remember getting to like the garrison junction and I pulled over because my other son was like, um, mom, and there was just roving, like flying out. Finn was covered in it. He was just sweating. He was sleeping though. He had, it's like, he had no idea and he was just covered in wool and he just wakes up and he just looks so hung over it. Yeah. So, you know, when you're driving with roving in the car, make sure it's secured. Don't, don't, don't be like me. <laughs> oh, no. oh. oh, but the stories we get to tell when we, when we goof around. Oh, I know. It makes it makes for a good time. I get them. I love how Facebook does those Facebook memories. They always pop up in those little things. They just kind of come back around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you come back to Montana for Copper K and you pick up sheep, I imagine you're going to pick up these sheep again, or are you looking at a different breed? Yes, I'll be. I'll be definitely be doing Lester again. I think you know there's a particular challenge. I think for the breeders that are in the Western half of the States, um, not just drought conditions because it is an English breed. They tend to like, you know, lush pasture, but so you have that, but also just in marketing them, I think a lot of the Western breeders do struggle a bit because, you know, it's, it's a, it's fine wool country and it's kind of hard. I think sometimes when you're growing long wool, it just feels, you just kind of feel a little bit misunderstood and it can be harder to market not only your fiber but your sheep. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't mind going and picking up Ann Camper's sheep again, kind of using that as a hub over there. Cause I know Maine over here in Maine, medium and long wools are like a big thing compared to fine wool, just the weather and practicalities, you know, it's just long wools and medium wools. That's what's mainly grown here. So I've actually been able to find a market over here. This whole niche that I was working on in Montana has really actually done very well over here in comparison. And so it really does work out. And so when I do go and get stock and at some point and bring them back over, I think it'll do well. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of breeders over here, at least up in this part of New England. And there's one down in Stetson, uh, Healy Heritage Farm. She's like 30 minutes away and she has two Lester's. And I was like, I just was like dying inside. I was like, oh, yes. Thank goodness. You know, I think there's another down South. And so not a whole lot up here, but it makes it very hard because, you know, you look at Maine and it's completely surrounded by Canada, basically. Montana kind of is too, but (laughs) it's a little bit more open. Whereas we're kind of up here in this little like corner, you know, something that I've noticed is that most people aren't willing to really go very far for breeding stock. Yeah. But I think it does kind of open up a whole thing where it's like, you know, even if I went over to Montana to get Lester, if somebody needed something, I'd be like, hey, you know, it's like going for takeout. Like, you know, you need something, I'll get you something, bring it back. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We do that when we have friends who are going to to Canada Mm -hmm. or when we have friends that go to Utah and California. You know, Trader Joe's is not anything we have here in Montana. 
but I'm a Trader Joe's fanatic. Their cookie butter is amazing. <laughs> so every time somebody's going, it's kind of like this, like, you need to pick that up for me. That's right. And I think, you know, and when you live in small towns, I mean, you're in a bigger area and talking about coming here and, and picking up breeding stock. We do that a lot here in these little towns like Allie and I, have, you know, the, the store and the everything is, you know, an hour away. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you need? So I think that that's cool that you'll do that cross country. I, you know, hit me up. We may need something from where you're at. It's true. Yeah. I think so. You know, when I get to that point, I think that that's going to be, that'll be a huge advantage, at least for, you know, people growing wool and, and stock up this way, because it is, it can be quite secluded sometimes from the rest of the country. So, yeah. Yeah. And you want some, you want some variation in that breeding stock. You don't want the same. Oh yeah. Yeah. The same genetics all the time. Right. And I mean, there is such a thing as line breeding, but, you know, to a certain extent, you can only, you can only do that so much, you know, before it's like, eh, you know what I mean? So yeah, totally agree. So for those of us not familiar with line breeding, you can you describe that a little bit? Line breeding is actually, it's kind of essentially how breeds are created a bit. So you, that's how you get purebreds. Yeah. Purebreds. You kind of look at when you're looking at a flock and they all kind of look the same, you know, that's, obviously you you're being quite successful but line breeding a lot of times that's like taking an animal from the same genetics not necessarily like father daughter type stuff but like you're taking sheep from the same genetics and you're breeding them back into the same line you know within reason you know there's uh inbreeding coefficients and stuff you got to look at and i it's, it's been a long time for me. So I've, I'm kind of, <laughs> I feel like I'm bumbling through it right now. It's like, you don't use it, you lose it kind of a thing. Essentially you are using the same genetics from the same family, but within reason. So that's kind of the gist of it, I guess, just to get that. If you're look, if you're breeding for a particular thing, that's how you get it. You know, you just kind of have to look at the strong points of each individual sheep and, and see like, okay, if I do this, what is going to mess up and what's going to go well. And if it goes well, that's, you know, that's line breeding. <laughs> that's the difference between line breeding and inbreeding is if it goes well, it's line breeding. If it doesn't, that's inbreeding. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I do have a question. It's a little bit off the line breeding though, but what is it that you exactly, what is Lester wool? It is a long wool, but what do you particularly do with it? I do a lot of different things with it. Lester's kind of fun because it's a long wool. A lot of people that make art yarns, you know, you can do like the lock spun or the tail spun, like that fun textural stuff, which is fun in weaving or knitting. But also you can do it in like a more, you can prepare it in a more traditional way, like worsted, which gives you a very smooth, like just a very smooth and just more traditional yarn. You know, you can make warp with it because it's a very strong wool and has a long staple length. So you can do um, weaving with it, um, which I haven't done a whole lot with, but I intend to. I have some projects in mind. For me, like, I mean, honestly, I've mostly been knitting with it the past few years. That, that has been like my fiber of choice. It's just kind of helped bring me closer to the breed. And just also, I mean, when you're selling yarn, you have to have samples, right? So it's been kind of like a two for two for one for me where I'm getting samples out of the deal, but you know, I get to play with this wool that I love and, you know, I offer it in different preparations, which can, can, it can give different effects. So like a lopey style wool can give you like those beautiful halos, a lot like mohair, which I like mohair. It's like 
more people need to know about this, you know, like this beautiful halo that it can have, but also it can be really just smooth. And I love the shine. I'm like a little, like, I'm like a crow. I love the shiny stuff. And I love, yes, because when you go, like when I have, when I do markets and like the sun is shining on it, it is like the heavens are singing. I'm like, that is just beautiful. Like, look at that. And everybody always stops and just is like, wow, what is that? I'm like, well, it's luster. (laughs) And it takes dye beautifully. I love to dye. You know, that's kind of become my niche is like offering all these crazy different colors. And it just, it loves the dye pot. Like you can get these beautiful, super saturated colors and it just takes it like nothing. It's like, okay, love this. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I know I bought some yarn from your sister at Copper K when she was there the last time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I made my grandbabies and my daughter, all three matching hats from your yarn. I don't remember the color. I mean, the, the name of it, but it was white with pink in it. White with pink. Mm. I'm trying. I think I have the tag upstairs. I'd have to look at it, but maybe I'll take a picture and post it online. Cause it, then it's a link to you. And yeah. Um, yeah. Love- so that was fun. Yeah. It's been, I mean, I dyed so many colors. Sometimes I'm like, what? I don't even know. Like it's, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but pinks, pinks t- and pinks and blues tend to be kind of what I gravitate towards for collections that kind of like the mountains and the alpine glow and snow. So usually like I'll do like a little trio of colors um, as an initial collection, you know, and like mountain dusk is probably one of my more popular colors. It's like, like steely blue kind of color. And then alpine glow is like, just kind of like a beautiful corally pink. And then of course, just like white, which is a natural color, um, you know, just left in its natural state. So are Lester's all white? Um, so yeah, Lester's are not all white, actually. They do come in colored. There's three different colors, but when I, you know, white, English blue and black. And I had, I actually didn't have any English blues in my flock. I only had white and black. I was at that time trying to work towards more colored because that, was actually very popular. I would sell more of my colored fleeces, you know, straight off the sheep than anything else. But the white is really fun to dye. So it's kind of like you get both of these best of both worlds, but yeah, they come in different colors. Nice. Cool. I love your dyed colors. I was, when I was on your website, looking at all those different color locks, it was very hard not to add more things to my cart this time. (sighs) Well, you know, I, I am doing so I just started doing dyed to order. Um, I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. I had it for a few things, but you know, I usually just do like a few of every color, which sometimes people get, it's can be a little frustrating. I understand. Cause it's like, okay, you want a sweater quantity. So I was like, okay, free, like dyed to order. Why was I doing this? So I do have that available now on the website for like sweater quantities or, or whatever you like. And I'll probably expand my color offerings. Maybe be, maybe, uh, discontinue some and then just kind of look back and, and see what, where we're at. I just, I do a lot of bright colors, but I probably should do some like muted ones and I'm kind of shifting towards that as well. Yeah. I see you with bright colors a lot and I love them. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, I was like, that's kind of what I'm known for. I guess <laughs> this big rainbow of yarn out there on my table. It's fun. It is fun. Your newest one, that blazing orange is amazing. Yes. That has been one of my top sellers, I had a sweater made. I actually had it made for me a couple of years ago as a, as a sample. I was a little 
you know, at that point I was a little too chicken to knit a sweater yet. So I had a friend of mine, like an online friend who had never met. I mean, I paid her well for it, but she knit me the Telja sweater, which I had chosen these colors. You know, one of them was a blaze orange, which I had in another base of mine, another luster base. But the orange, the blaze orange is probably one of my most popular colors besides like blues and, and teals. And that one, it just, you know, practical, practical and fun. That's what that one is. Yeah, it's it's really pretty. So tell me about spinning this fiber. When you're spinning it, how do you like to spin it? Um, so my my spinning is a little more rustic. So, you know, first like I was like, first of all, take that into account. My own spinning is is somewhat rustic. So I actually like to do art yarns usually with it with a lock spinning, but when when you're like you're gonna be spinning from roving, um, the roving that I have is gonna be more of like a woolen. Like when you go to spin, it might be more like a semi-worsted because the fibers tend to align by themselves. So my recommendation though, is don't add too much twist to it. It'll, it'll hold itself together just fine. You know, just don't put too much twist in it. Like you would a fine wool because it'll end up being ropey and not very, not very soft at all. Like, you know, long wools already have the stigma about being coarse. And when you add too much twist, that just, it becomes like twine or like, like bailing twine, you know? So don't add too much twist, you know, just a little bit of, just a little bit of do it. So that's, that's my recommendation. Okay. Because I think that's probably been my problem all this time spinning the long wool. So I, I tend to be one of those fine wool mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. because I like to spin lace and I like to knit lace, but the way that I'm hearing you talk, I can still spin thin with Lester. I would just not put as much twist into it to keep it a little bit soft, but because it would be, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it would be sort of sleek and dense, wouldn't it? Right. Right. Lester tends to be quite heavy. Like I take a look at my sweaters and, and they, there's like some substance to them. Even, you know, I knit this, um, this sweater and fingering weight and I go to pick it up. I'm like, wow, that's got some, a little heft to it. <laughs> you know, it, it feels he- like it's just, it's just the way that the wool is, it's just heavier. And, you know, that's just what it was bred to do, you know, repelling rain. So you think of what a sheep was bred for and what conditions it was bred in, and then apply that same principle to what you're going to be using that wool for. Okay. So like, I think of like fine wools next to skin because you need to stay warm because they tend to do better in certain areas, but then you have long wools, which were bred in rainy areas and they do really well for outerwear. Okay. So hats, mittens, scarves, things like that. Scarves mm, on a scarves, I would say like maybe um, it depends because, like I said, like I I say that Lester is softer than most long wools, but also take it with a grain of salt because everybody's skin is different. Lamb's wool right. is going to be softer than the mature fleeces and. With long wools, you're going to see a lot more variation throughout the course of their life um, than like a fine wool would. So like a, a, a Lester lamb's wool is going to be so much softer than the wool coming off of a more mature animal. So you kind of apply that to what you're making as well. Like you could do a whole breed study just on the breed alone, just based on whether or not the fiber was clipped once or twice a year, whether it's from a lamb or a mature or like a hogget. So you have all these little details that could really actually affect the um, the final outcome, including how the fiber was prepped as well. So, right. 
Now, when you prep your fiber, do you comb it or do you have it carded? Do you process it yourself or do you send it out? I process it every once in a while. And then I'm reminded why I send it out. It's not, <laughs> it's just not my, fa- I, eh, it's not my favorite to do it myself. So I send it out. A lot of the roving that I've had done is done by the wool mill in Belgrade um, by Levon. Um, and she, it's not like a true like combed prep that she does. Hers is carded, but because it's usually long staple, it tends to be, it tends to straighten itself out. So you get more like, even though you might think it would be wor- like a woolen prep, it ends up being more like a semi-worsted. Worsted prep is going to give you the smoothest. I think that like the fiber you got from me is going to be more of like a semi-worsted uh, because it, it was sheared twice a year. So it'll be more like a woolen type. Okay. So it'll be very, you know, it'll, it'll be good for outerwear and such. Okay. So have you done shawls with it at all? I have. I actually knit a wedding shawl for my sister. It took me a long freaking time because (laughs) I don't consider myself a very fast knitter and it was a lot of challenges, but it was a beautiful shawl. It was the Cassiopeia shawl by Alicia Plums, who, by the way, when I first started that shawl, I met her like accidentally (laughs) at the, God, there's a, there's a fair over in unity. What is it called? Oh my gosh. I just blanked out. It's a big one too. In unity. We'll have to look it up and put it up on the show notes. Oh yeah. Um, I just totally blanked out what it was. I was like, I went to it and it's a huge one, but uh, yeah, I met her there and it was like, I was talking about to this fiber lady about this shawl I was knitting and the maker of that pattern was standing right there. She's like, you mean the Cassiopeia? Cause I was pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's, um so anyway it was just like this really serendipitous moment that I was like wow that's amazing like who'd have thought so that was cool yeah that would have been really cool to meet the meet the designer yeah it just was so random I I I remember seeing her out of the corner of my eye too and I was like (laughs) she looks kind of like familiar but like I don't want to be rude and like you know so out of context oh common ground fair like how could I forget common ground fair that's what it was common ground my goodness yeah, that's like, it's a huge festival. I mean, you have to park and like walk, you have to hike in basically. It's, that's a crazy one. I mean, I haven't done that as a vendor, but like just to go, I mean, it is just, it's something else. I've never been to anything like that before. I can't even begin to describe it. Like it was cool. I'm gonna have to look that one up and then de- we'll definitely post a link in the show notes. So if you're close to that area or want to go, you guys can can head on over and see what Emily's talking about. I'll also post a link for the Cassiopeia shawl and the designer, just so you guys can see the shawl. And Emily, if you want, if you can send a photo of your finished shawl, I think that would be fun to post with the, with the podcast. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. And I mean, since then I've, I mean, I knit my first sweater this past year too. I just finished it in January. I saw that it was gorgeous. Thank you. I, I actually, I'm wearing it today. I was like, you know what? In the spirit of things, I'm going to wear my first sweater. And that was the Crown of Roses sweater. And I just, I mean, it took me a long time, the color work and, and whatnot. And like I said, I'm not a very fast knitter and it was fingering weight yarn, which like, I really set out to challenge myself this past year with my projects. And yeah, both that shawl and that sweater were just like, wow. You know, and I'm working on another sweater now too. It's the Trifora. Um, and so I've been trying to use all my different bases of Lester, you know, as we go here. Um, but it's, 
it's going by a lot quicker. We'll just put it that way. It's a, <laughs> that's less color work, but like, you know, I think, you know, it, all those projects are so worth it. You know, it's, it's great for growth. I think, you know, just yeah, internally, you know, learning patience and stuff. Absolutely. I, I think we're all sort of on a journey. Most people that I've talked to in the last probably six months, everybody seems like they are on a journey for some sort of growth in something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like climbing that mountain. You know, you just, you don't know why, but you just got to do it. And, but you know, when you come to it and you finally reach the top, it's like, wow, I did it. (laughs) You know, it's important to do. It is very important to do. Now, is your family, uh, we know Finn is involved, but is your family still involved with the stuff that you do or do they just kind of go, all right, you're on your own? Um, You know, it's hit or miss sometimes. You know, it's the, the last few years of moving has been kind of chaotic. You know, they do get involved here and there. I think mostly they're just good at giving me compliments and I'll take that. Like, you know, I finished my sweater and all the kids were just like petting it and they were like, wow, like that's pretty cool. And then you know, one of them was like, you should, how much would you sell that for? And I was like, well, first of all, you're going too far, but you know, (laughs) like I'm never selling this, but they're most right now they're mostly support. You know, sometimes they go and they're the muscle behind the shows. They'll come in and bring totes in for me, but most of it right now I'm, I'm pretty much doing myself. I think my middle child has shown a little bit of interest in maybe learning how to knit. He's kind of interested in what I was doing and eh, kind of, kind of brought it up, but not quite, not quite there yet, but we'll see. We'll see. I think he's good at marketing. He's a, he's a salesman. He's always trying to sell me stuff. He's like, well, you know, mom, there's only a few left. Whenever I go to fiber festivals, he's always like, mom, there's only like two left. You might not be here when you come back. And he's a great enabler. (laughs) You need him along when you go to those shows. Oh man. I spend so much money when I'm with him. I'm like, I wouldn't have done it if he wasn't there. (laughs) that's funny that is funny and your husband seems like he's sort of in the he's in the background a lot I've never met your husband yeah I mean I'm you talk about him often I yeah it's it's funny I mean he's been to shows and stuff he kind of just he just knows that like if he doesn't hurry up and load up the car or something well might we might be there for hours with me just chatting so he tends to just go sit in the car and like that's my cue (laughs) (laughs) honestly he just knows me well enough he's like He's like, I don't know. Like, you know, you just, you, you do talk a lot, which is fine. Like he doesn't have any problem with that, but you know, he's just, he's more practical, but you know, he puts up with me. That's all right. <laughs> like, <laughs> poor man's had to live through me just like randomly buying sheep. And, and, you know, I think at one point this whole thing over the past couple of years, trying to figure out where we wanted to move, like he knew that I wanted to live up North where it's a little more sheep friendly, you know, obviously raising sheep in the South is its own challenge. Although there are breeds adapted to it, but he's from Florida originally, you know, and we met, we met in Hawaii. It's like its own whole crazy story. And somehow we ended up here in Maine and uh, you know, it actually works. It's like a weird dynamic, but it works. You know, him being from Florida, me being from Montana, Maine is like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a weird mix between them both. Cause you have like beaches on one end and then you have woods and sort of mountains a little further up you go and we're kind of stuck right there in the middle in Dexter which is like an old mill town so it's got that woolen history which is pretty cool you know I have I go down to the historical society 
sometimes and they have like an old like picker I think it was oh fun and so it's kind of cool to see yeah I mean it was there's an old mill that's still here it's used for different purposes now but you know there's another woolen mill 20 minutes away that's Bartlett so it just all kind of happened it was a lot of just like I said since we've moved to Maine there's been a lot of little serendipitous moments like um one of the first people I didn't realize it I'm going on a whole hold on I'm going on a whole different thing here but one of the very first people that ever bought a fleece from me. And I totally forgotten about it until like I moved here and we had a rental down in Stockton Springs. And the lady that bought my very first fleece, like ever, like online, lived like in the town next door. And we met and turns out asked her at the church that was right next door to our house that we rented. I was like, what is going on? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So that's very cool. I mean, I th- I think life has a way of taking us through those things and to those things. Yeah. And I think, I think those little moments, they do kind of help you feel like you're doing the right thing. You know, I, it's hard to know what to do sometimes, especially when you move all the way across country, everything that you've known is like just flipped upside down. It was, it's, it was kind of hard for a while having an identity or like knowing which direction to take my business but, you know, I kind of feel like I'm on a, a pretty good path now, even if, you know, it's going to be a little while before sheep, but it just, you know, everything is kind of lining up. That's really cool. So tell me what, yeah. I guess as we're going to, we're probably going to start wrapping up here a little bit. We don't want to go too long. We don't want to take too much of your time. So if you could sum it up for people about the breed, what would you say is we know what your favorite things are, but why would you say try this breed for those who are, you know, maybe on the fence with the long wools or who don't have a history with them or who maybe really like those fine, fine fleeces? Why Lester? What can we do to help promote that breed? And let's talk a little bit about the Livestock Conservancy and their Shave Them to Save Them initiative, which I know you were part of and People can get the sticker through you as well for this breed, correct? Yes, correct. I still am a part of that as a vendor. So I guess for people that haven't tried Lester, kind of think about like, what do you like to do? First of all, what what do you normally gravitate towards? And then kind of go from there. Because one of the great things about the Lester is its versatility, I think. So if you can kind of figure out like what you want to make and match it to the fiber that you're buying. So, you know, the lamb's wool is much more soft um, than the mature fleece. Like, you know, we kind of mentioned that earlier. So kind of matching that to what you're going to be making. You know, I I offer several different types of yarns. So I have a, like a three-ply fingering weight that's pretty well like a worsted prep. Um, it's quite smooth. And I also have single-ply and I also have lopi style um, as well as the two-ply. So you kind of just match those to what you're going to make. You know, I like I said, I wouldn't recommend like a scarf, but like a, a great sw- great in sweaters. They're so durable, but you know, there's there's just a lot more to kind of just nail down when it comes to a long wool, and that's long wools in general. Like it can be, it can be like a whole jungle out there. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it's kind of hard to just you know tell you one thing or the other. But like I said, you kind of kind of figure out like when you're looking at a yarn, like look at look at the listing, like what, what does it tell you, you know, and they're all going to be so different depending on, on the vendor, but uh, you can get a pretty good idea. I mean, you know, like for me, it's like I said, lamb's wool versus mature fleece. That's like, just look at those and then go from there. 
you know, I like I like working with both. The lamb's wool tends to have a little bit more of a halo to it, I think, like a kid mohair. The mature does too, to a degree, but it, it takes a little bit more to get there. I feel like I'm kind of rambling. Sorry, but it's... No, it's okay. No, it's all good information and, and we appreciate it. It's such a broad, uh, it, like even though it's one breed, it just, it feels like it's such a broad topic to to cover just because of all those things. But yeah, I mean, if you're looking for something durable, I mean, that's, that's where it's at. So... Does it felt? Say again? Does it felt? It it does. Um, I've heard some people say they have a hard time felting with it, but it does. It does tend to be a bit of a like a, a smoother handle to it, which some people I think have had some issue with. But like felting locks and stuff on on the art projects and whatnot, it, a lot of people do do that with it. But yeah, it does felt as well. Yeah. Would it felt well? Do you think probably in more of a Nuno felting type application? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, I haven't done as much felting in the past couple of years as I used to, but I've done like felted soaps and stuff, which I felt like maybe Lester was almost a little too fuzzy for um, because of that halo. I just have it. It's a textural thing for me. Yeah, it felt really well. I always like to do the locks, though. Like that was kind of where the magic was for me was the felted like felting locks like for pumpkins or I did a piece a few years ago for a um, it was a donation piece, but it was like an underwater scene with like kelp and stuff with the locks. And it was really, really cool. Hmm, That sounds cool. I use a lot of locks when I'm doing, like you said, needle felted pumpkins. And then when I do those wool paintings that I do. Mm, Oh yes. So I was trying to think of what her name was. There's an artist in Montana that does a lot of felted stuff and she's bought some locks from me before. Let's see. What is her name? I don't remember her, but so it started with an A. Is that Alina? Yes. Yes. Alina Larson. She's out of Billings and she's originally from the Ukraine, but the things that she does with the locks and her Nuno felting is out of this world. Yes. That was the, I was trying to think of her name. I was like, that, that's her. And she does a beautiful job and just gets all these beautiful textures, mix and match and you know, you have these, like when Lester, when you're looking at a Lester lock, they have just these beautiful crimp. That's like, a, I mean, literally like a wave, which is, you know, making waves in the wool, right? So you have a beautiful wave. And so what you can do is you can actually thin those out too. So you can peel them and make them thinner or leave them thick. So there's different things you can do to kind of play with different effects. If you want a finer look versus a more chunky. Yeah. And when you're spinning it, do you like to spin it thin or do you like to spin it thicker? Oh, you thicker, like all day, every day. I don't have patience for thin yarn, first of all. Like that's just a personality trait. It hurts, like my brain screams at me. I do love uh, to specially spinning like the locks and stuff. When I when I do pull locks, like for selling, you know, in my shop and stuff, a lot of times I'll end up with like this fuzzy fluff left over. That's actually my favorite because it still has a little bit of lock structure. And so when I'm spinning, sometimes I'll kind of just leave those little those little tips left out. And so you kind of get like a semi like lock spun type of a yarn. And it's just, it's not as heavy as a traditional lock spun yarn because it's got more of like a woolen type core to it. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And I haven't done that in a long time actually, but now that I'm like saying it, I'm like, I should, I should go and do that. (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) I love this. (laughs) I think you just gave me an idea. So when I do pull, like you said, pulling the locks for 
the pumpkin kits and things that I do, I do have that fuzz and you can't put it in the kit because it's not locky enough to make a, you know, a stem or anything or, or the little leaf hanging off the pumpkin, but I've never thought of spinning, spinning with it. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you just kind of, I guess you'd kind of call it like spinning from the cloud, I guess, and just let it happen. It's not really a bat. It's just a big pile of just fluff. And it's, it's a lot of fun to spin because it's, it's just, it's still light, but like has a little bit of chunkiness to it. So it's kind of a delight really when you, when you like to have variation in your yarn. Yeah. I need to work on variation in my yarn. I am that person who will sit and spin super thin for Mm -hmm. many, 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 many hours. I think my last really big skein of lace weight, it probably took me a hundred hours to spin both singles and then ply it. Bless you for that. I I don't don't have it in me, but I was like, oh, well, you know, that's what a mill is for. I'll make mine look, definitely look like hands, but (laughs) no mistaking. (laughs) And mine, but yeah, that's, that's amazing. I really like, and it's not like, I'm not over here insulting people that do that kind of hand spinning. I actually quite admire it. It's just not for me, but it's, that is amazing when people do do that. It's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. I think it's important for everybody to kind of figure out what it is they like Mm -hmm. and just gravitate and do it. You have really made a niche with the Lester's you have made a niche in that, in the Breeders Association and the, all of the things that you do with your business and really promoting that wool. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it definitely was like a struggle at first just to try to figure out where that was, but I think I've definitely found, I think I actually, I think I, it's easier for me to sell other people's wool. Just like, there's that little bit of pressure behind it. Like, Oh, like, you know, I'm not just working for myself. I'm <laughs> I'm working for other people <laughs> and they're depending on me. <laughs> and so I think it, for whatever reason that has helped me, but also just knowing that I'm supporting other breeders and stuff. Cause not, not everybody likes selling their own wool, you know, that's just, you know, they raise it and that's, you know, so there's definitely, there's something to it. And I think that, you know, for a while it was kind of misunderstood what I was doing, but now that it's been a, been a little while I think it's kind of like okay I see what you're about and I can admire that so it's been it's been a journey but it's been a good one well it's been it's been a pleasure watching you with that journey I do know the one one other thing I wanted to talk about is I remember you having a photo shoot done with your sheep before you left here before you left Montana yes I I know the one yep (laughs) that's one of my favorite um, some of my favorite pictures. I don't even think I've shared them all. Actually, I, I have a quite a few that I just, I don't know. I just never shared them all, but yeah, there was some really amazing pictures. My friend Mackenzie did, and they were, they were beautiful. That landscape looks a lot different these days. I know where they were, where my sheep were, I guess it's a housing development these days, but yeah, it, those pictures are some of my favorites and I still share on occasion, some of those pictures, um, but I'll share some with you. I'll send some your way if you want. Yeah, I think that would be great. A few are actually on the uh, Montana fiber shed because when I was still a part of that, I shared a bunch and I think there might even still be some on the website. So if you go to the Montana fiber shed website, you might actually see some of my sheep there. Okay. The thing I remember the most though, I mean, they were beautiful pictures. Those sheep are big. They are, but let me tell like they are cause they're long wool, but like a lot of that is just fleece because 
<clears throat> I mean, they're they're not even the biggest long wool breed. Like Lincoln is actually quite a bit bigger than a Lester. Like if you were to compare the two, a Lester is actually quite a bit more manageable in size. And like, actually that was part of the reason why I chose them too, between the Lincoln and the Lester was because of their size for myself. Like I knew I was going to be doing most of the management. So they're, they're big, but they're not like unmanageably big. Does that make sense? Because they, yeah, they're just, they're a little more compact, but not, you know, not tiny, but not huge, huge. They're not, they're not a horse, <laughs> but they are, they're big old barrel. They, they're, they're, they got capacity. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. They do have capacity because they do love their food, highly food motivated. I love that about them. You just go and shake a bucket. Like sometimes they would get out. <laughs> like I'd get a call from my uncle and he'd be like, your sheep are out. And I'm like, Oh God, that's like not the call I want right now. And then I'd go and I'd shake the bucket and then they come running, you know, they can pack it away for sure. But yeah, they, they're funny like that, but yeah, they are, they're, they're, they're decently sized sheep. They're, you know, they, they do have a tendency to get fat if they want to put on some pounds, but they, um, you know, I would say they're modestly sized. Like I was able to shear them myself. You know, I went to shearing school and that whole thing just because I knew I was going to be getting sheep. And a lot of times it's hard to get a shearer out for just a few sheep, you know, in Montana, like that's not very many sheep over here. It's like over here in Maine, that's more of like a normal size, but over there in Montana, that's a small flock. And so I knew I might be shearing myself. So I went to shearing school, learned how to shear. And so I did, I sheared my own flock. They were a pain in the butt sometimes, <laughs> but I say you're kind of my hero for doing that. You and Shannon Kennedy, both, um, were two, two females and both of you are, and I'm not trying to make it sound like there's nothing to you, but both of you are a little bit slight in your frames. You're both smaller, slender. And to see both of you work with these sheep, you're both my heroes. Someday I am going to go to sharing school just because I say I want to go. And like you, I have one sheep left. Yeah. Getting somebody to come out and shear one. Yeah. That's, that's hard. Yeah. Just for the experience in itself. It was, it was really cool. I had, it was probably one of the most empowering things I think I've done probably really ever that I remember as far as just me personally, I think that was Shearing school was a, was a big one, you know, Montana state does their shearing school. And I, there was actually quite a few girls that was, that were doing that at the time. Um, I think at least half the class was girls and that's becoming more and more of a thing in the shearing industry. They're seeing a lot more women getting into it, which, you know, when you take a look at the sheep that are being, you know, bred these days, a lot of them are quite big and not saying that we can't do it because there's plenty of people that do. Like, I don't think I can anymore. Like, I'm way out of shape these days. <laughs> you know, as far as doing that, that's quite, it's very physical work. You know, and my family had the flu that weekend too. They all ended up being sick. I was out of my mind, tired. It is a huge accomplishment to do. And, you know, I was never like one of the best, but it's something that I'm very proud of. Yeah, definitely. Allie, do you think you ever want to share your own sheep? Well, I just talked to a gal in um, Townsend and she has sheep. So I, now that I have two, I asked her, I'm like, who shears your sheep? And she went to shearing school. So she's not any good at it, but that she has somebody come up from Dillon. But, you know, she probably has a hundred head of Icelandic. And I, I'm like, I really should go to shearing school. It sounds intriguing. I think I could do it. So anyhow, so yeah, because eventually these girls are going to need sheared 
and mm -hmm. two, I mean, they load up really nicely. I could take them somewhere, but yeah, why not learn how to do it? Yeah. And I mean, there's, uh, and aside from shearing, like, you know, more of a traditional, like what we think of as traditional shearing school, you can take it way back to real traditional. There's people over here. There's a lot of blade shears over here that I've met. It's like a, like a whole thing. Like, you know, New England is really big into history. And so there's a lot more blade shears than I've ever met over here. Like there's a family, a family that puts on the Machias Fiber Fest. They do blade shearing. And that's what this gal said she did. She started doing her own with just, you know, I was thinking an electric one, but she does the, the I guess you call it blades. It looks like a big pair of shears. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I don't know. I'm like, how do you do belly and armpits and all that? With Oh yeah. The maneuvers that you do. I mean, that does help. You know, when you look at how shears shear and they're sitting them down, all of the, all of that is done in a way that actually helps, helps the whole process. You know, you're it's stretching the sheep in a certain way that, True. you know, all, yeah. So I mean, that's part of what they teach you in shearing school. Um, and, oh, nice. Uh, so they teach you all that. Like, you're not going to be good. They say you don't get good till you do like your first 100 uh, <laughs> or a thousand. No, I think it was not a hundred. I think your first uh, thousand. And honestly, I can see it because, yeah, I don't think, I mean, I'm not that good. <laughs> I mean, I was okay for a while, but I did injure myself at some point and it did make it harder harder for me um to do you know a little less stamina because I, I injured my back at some point and um but and it slowed me down but it's a lot of bending over I mean that's all they do mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's I do it I, I probably I would say I don't do it right there's certain ways I think it hurts your back less I don't think I ever got that good <laughs> I don't know if I believe it, <laughs> but, um, they do have, they do have things to help aid and all that, you know, like slings and whatnot, but, but it, it can be hard. It's, it's pretty rough on, on me, but I, I, like I said, I wouldn't change it for the world either. You know, people that, that get into that highly admire and, you know, I highly encourage people that want to do it, do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I think Allie and I might have to go to school together so we can hold each other up. I know, right? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm like a giraffe. I have a long ways to the ground. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you'd probably be pretty good at doing the rams. I was too, I was kind of short, so I actually had to use my husband as an extension of my legs, and I would shear. My husband was holding because I could not I could not reach all the way down. And so my husband, because by the time my my I could do my ram the first year and then he grew because they're kind of a slow growing breed and he grew. And so the next year he was longer. And I was like, oh, what happened? Like, what is this? And so I had my husband come in and act as like an extension of my body and I sheared the ram. So that was interesting. It's not conventional, but it got the job done. Yeah. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. How many sheep did you have at one time, Emily? Mm, oh, I feel like that's a hard question. I think I like my flock was not that big. I think my core breeding flock was about like 10 or 12. Um, and then sometimes, you know, during mm -hmm. lambing season, that would double again. But yeah, so around there. And at that time, my goal, given the acreage, I was working myself up to like 50 or 60 is what I had wanted, you know, and it was like, the same year that I was just feeling like I was getting known and I had a waiting list for breeding stock. And I was like, all right, you know, I've hit my stride. I'm, I'm doing it. And then, you know, it all kind of came to an end, but that was my original goal was to kind of create like a bigger flock, but never quite got there, but you know, not over till it's over. 
That's right. And you're in a place that definitely is more conducive, sounds like more conducive to the breed than Montana is or was. Yeah. Like I you know, there are people that do raise them out West. It's definitely, they, they deal with their own, their own issues, but here it, yeah, I would say so. Like I'm amazed at how much (laughs) there's like green grass, like year round here. And it blows my mind. Um, it almost feels wrong. Um, I mean, like, I'm like, what is going on? I'm like panicking. Cause like springs here now we still got snow outside, but it just yesterday definitely felt like spring. You know, I would say worms are probably a bigger issue out here than we, than like where it's drier. West. Yeah. That's a bigger issue, which is its own thing. But yeah, as far as rain and, and hooves and all that stuff goes totally long wools and medium wools really dominate over here. I would say. Yeah. It sounds like it. So the the Shave Them to Save Them initiative, that whole thing was developed for bringing awareness to some of those conservation breeds, correct? Correct. And some of those guys, and I'm hoping to be able to talk to the Livestock Conservancy this year as a bonus episode for the podcast. We'll see if I you know, get my guts up and, and reach out to them the way that I should. But they're really nice. You should. I've heard that. And so I just need to, you know, it's one of those things you just sort of got to bite the bullet and do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I'm getting there. That's okay. <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that first sweater, I still haven't done that either. <laughs> well, I still haven't even knit a pair of socks. Like, I feel like, um, I felt like such an outcast. I was like, oh, like I'm over here calling myself a knitter, but I haven't knit like a pair of socks or like a sweater or anything. But like, I mean, I know it's not, <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with it, but like still there was like imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. Absolutely. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what it is. You know, I just think that they are such a great organization and they've done a lot to bring awareness. And I just, you know, now is the, is the Lester, is it considered, I know it's a conservation breed. Is it still a critical conservation breed? No, it's not critical. I think the next category up was endangered is what it was. Okay. Uh, they have different tiers for what that means. And I think it's just how many um, sheep are registered. I'd have to look it up again. Like I said, it's once it's out of sight, it's out of mind for a minute, but yeah, it has to do with how many, how many sheep registered or per year. So not critical endangered. So one of the ways that this group, or I hope that this group of 52 weeks of sheep is that we can help brings more awareness as well. Mm -hmm. And have people just, you know, try all the different types of fiber and find their new favorite. Yes. Yes. And like I said, you know, if you have, like you were saying, you, if you spun a long wool and you didn't like it, try it again, you know, maybe try something different, find out like what it was you were spinning, you know, was it lamb or mature and how many times a year was it shorn find those things out and try it again it's like eating like it's like eating a food like you might not like it the first time but try it again under different circumstances and see if you like it yeah and i will definitely be doing that lighter twist in mine i i i would almost guarantee i will like it better because my feeling was it was it was very twiny or ropey even when i was spinning thin it was not, it didn't feel soft to me yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're spinning it the same way you spin like Rambouillet, you're totally going <laughs> to, you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Allie, did you have any other questions for Emily before we wrap up? I don't think so. You've been a world of information and I'm excited. Now I, I want to 
spend some more. I think I bought some fleece from you that you were actually selling for Anna, maybe out of Bozeman. Yes. Once a year, I do a, a sale for Ann Camper. Um, I do try to do that for my featured fiber farms um, where I, you know, I put them on my website for like a month at a time and then make, you know, feature them. I, I do plan on expanding that to some of my other featured uh, fiber farmers as well. But Ann Camper, I know her fleeces are good. So like, even though I'm way over here now, like I have faith that like, it'll be good. Um, and I have no problem selling them. And um, she's actually getting to the point now where she's just pre-selling them, which is great. Like, you know, I'm kind of just... I'm blown away at, at the, at how well that has done for her. So I'm, I'm real happy with it. So like, I would always encourage people to buy from the, from the breeder before, you know, even myself, but like, you know, I still feel that niche and I think it's all important and yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm excited. I think I might have to try it again myself and yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. You have been an amazing wealth of information. It's always fun chatting with you. I miss you terribly in Montana. I have to tell you. (laughs) Well, I miss you guys too. Like, you know, I, I I really do. I miss, I I think that's one of the biggest things I miss is not just the scenery, but you know, all my friends back home. That's a, I think that's, I mean, I have a lot of friends here too, but I do, I do miss you guys. Yeah. You're just, you are a ball of energy. Um, well, you're not, not you were, you, you were here. I'm sure you are there, but yeah, I just well, remember yes. you this ball of energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's me. <laughs> it's like just, <laughs> it's maybe chaotic energy, but it's an energy. <laughs> oh, yes. Send some this way, would you? I will. And, you know, I will be bringing some of that to most of the shows that I am doing right now are here in Maine. Now I I haven't quite ventured outside the state yet. I'm like, you know, I have taxes to deal with now, like sales tax. So I'm, <laughs> I'm like baby steps. Okay. I'm figuring all this stuff out, but you know, I'll be doing the fiber marketplace in York, Maine. Um, that's the beginning of April. There's the main fiber frolic, which is the first weekend of June. That one's a really, really fun one. Really, uh, really had a good time there. And then uh, Machias Fiber Festival as well, which is the second weekend in September. It's a one day show. It's September 14th. So those are like the main ones that I go to now. I do plan to return to Copper K someday as well. That's probably my favorite one of ever, you know, of all time. Just, you know, you don't, you don't forget your first, right? So- <laughs> you don't. And it was Copper K that gave me my first shot at teaching. So no, you don't ever forget your first and you kind of have this really cool, fun allegiance to them. Do you ever do the, the New England Fiber Festival? I haven't yet. Is that is that the one in New Hampshire? Is it in New Hampshire? Yes. I haven't done that one yet. I've seen it. I just, I've, I've got to work myself up to it. You know, I probably won't do it this year. I don't know. I don't know when their uh, deadline is, but I'll, I'll work myself up to that because I think that would be a good one um, to go to and kind of expand. But you know, for myself, like I said, being new to the area, I'm kind of just like, I'm still, I'm still figuring things out. Absolutely. You know, Montana doesn't tax and neither does New Hampshire. So I'm like, well, maybe it would be a little more familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I did Uh, apply there last year and they had accepted me for one class, but for one class to travel all the way to New Hampshire was, was a bit, they just had their their call for teaching submission. I think that deadline was just last week. So I'm not sure if vendors are 
are still open or not, but maybe you and I will, we'll get a chance to meet up there at some point. Yeah. Well, we can camp, you can camp out at my house. We'll make the little journey. <laughs> That'll work. I'm always looking for fiber friends to enjoy the adventure. How convenient of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you got a lot of information from Emily. Emily, if they're looking to find you on, you know, on the web or on Facebook, where can they find you? All right. So I I always recommend you go to my website. It's going to have the most information. I do a newsletter. I try to send it out once a month. So make sure to sign up for that. Uh, kind of rounds up everything I've been doing. Um, but I am on Instagram and Facebook as well. So you can look for Mrs. Hartman's Farmhouse Market. There you go. And you all know where to find Allie and I. We'll drop all of that information in the show notes for you. So you can find us all along with some of those patterns and, and photos and everything. And we hope you enjoyed yourself. We will talk to you next week. And until then, happy spinning, everybody. Goodbye. See you guys. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye.